Well, tune in. We had gotten started with uh, talking about uh, what the Buddha means by Sila Bhatta Paramasa, are our attachments to rites, rules, and rituals. And that then you mentioned about the world and so what we can say is is that the uh child as he grows up begins to learn the rules of society the rights rules and rituals is basically uh, a list of things of how we're expected to behave and feel towards the society in general in any way that you want to describe it locally or universally and uh, various pockets have different nuances but basically there's a set of rules that we're supposed to live by and uh, much of that rules to live by is not just not doing harm but that you're supposed to do good you're supposed to be a patriot you're supposed to go to church. You're supposed to tithe. You're supposed to pay your taxes. Okay, there's a whole lot of supposed tos, uh, as well as thou shalt nots in there. Now, um, how the that whole show got started, um, and and linking it in a kind of a religious way. Is, is that um, the con the idea is that if you do what you're told to do or that you do because you were told to do it and you do it, the people who told you to do it already think, and perhaps you also do, think that that's good. They told you to do it. It's good. And if they tell you to not do it, that gives the idea that it must be bad because you were told not, not to. Okay, the question is good for who and not good for whom? That's an important question because um, often the authorities or those who set themselves up as authority or a boss because they want something and you've got it. They want it from you. Okay. And that can be as much as subtle as your time or your activity to go about doing a job. And so they have to convince you that doing that is good so that they can get you to do it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, uh, <clears throat> there is also an alternate way of doing it, and that is, is that they can make life very difficult for you if you don't do it. All right. This is basically the carrot and the stick. Now, the carrot and the stick is more of a promised carrot and a promised stick. Rather than an actual stick. The promised stick is that if you don't shut up, I'm going to beat the tar out of you. Right. Not actually beating the tar out, just telling you it's going to happen if you don't do what I tell you to do. So most of the um, uh, the stuff is actually metaphorical or promise or something off into the future. And right. that many kids who, who are out on a lark or, or shoplifting or doing things like that, they then, because they can find out for themselves that it's true, that they can get away with it. And so there's this duality of uh, <clears throat> those who don't conform with the rules. And uh, so they think that they can get away with it, which means that the rule keepers are going to make the rules as ironclad as they can. So then the idea of uh, if you do good, you'll get good results. And if you do bad, you'll get bad results no matter what, hmm. no matter what, okay? And basically what that leads to then is concepts of heavens and hells or that you get punished eventually for what you've done wrong. 
and yet you will be rewarded eventually for what you do good. Now, there's a few alternate stories with that. And that basically, um, one of the alternate stories is the, the concept of forgiveness. That there's either retribution, there is forgiveness, or there is rehabilitation. Those are the three possibilities. If something happens that uh, you want that that is unsatisfactory, let's say for a group of people, a mob, an individual, whatever, then he can either take revenge, which is punishing the other person, or he can forget about it and forgive it. Or he can go about fixing the situation. Those are the three ways that we do it. But our system brings out, forgets about that third concept of, of, um, of, let us say, fixing the situation or making friends with your enemy. Okay. Because forgiving someone is not enough. And not only that, but forgiveness is not enough because that just gives them permission to do it again. And puts them right back into the position then of, oh, wait a minute, I can get away with it. Because if, even if I do get caught, I can get forgiveness and then I can still get away with it. Correct. Okay. <clears throat> so, the, the correct way of doing, and then by the way, because they do get away with it, and then they are uh, free to do it again, that means that they will remain in the enemy camp if they do do it again. So because you forgive someone doesn't make them a friend. There's got to okay. be more than that. Okay. And, right. and ultimately, the, the, the top line of that would be that they now see the error of their ways, and therefore they will reform or refrain from doing that again, that they will show restraint. Okay. That's an interesting point now, because the second kind of thing is seeing it as opposed to it merely being a rule that we kind of took on faith or on promise. Promise of carrots, promises of sticks, etc., like that. Uh, so, uh, the Buddha has a teaching about the comma, which indicates that we cannot go by what something is good simply because we were told that it was good that we have to do that kind of investigation for ourselves. Each individual one has to know what is right and wrong, what is dukkha, what is not dukkha. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, that means we have to start reevaluating all the stuff that we got from society. It means we need to trust our own judgment instead of what we're told. Pardon? Uh, that means we need to trust our own judgment instead of what we're told, right? I wouldn't call it judgment. Okay. A better word would call it discernment. Because discernment? Judge, discernment. Because discernment has the quality of wisdom built into it. that You can actually see what's going on as opposed to judgment, which is normally and traditionally uh, operated by feeling. And so okay. people go with how we feel. Most, in fact, of the judges in court, they go by how they feel about the case. So that's what judgments are. They feel their way into it. And mm -hmm. I, there's a lot of maybe information that will feel that will feel that feed that feeling, but the feeling itself is it works like this: when when we like something, and we like it because it gives us 
delight in a very small or, or perhaps a large way, but there is delight. We like it. And because we like it, we want to continue and maintain that feeling of liking. And so now we think that if I own that product, then I can continue to have the delight that I had when I had that first initial reaction to it. Okay. So that means now I want it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you describe to some newbie who walks into the uh, the temple or somebody you met on the street and, and you start talking about how marvelous enlightenment is and he hears about it and he says, hot dog, I want that. <laughs> okay, so now he wants okay. something that he doesn't have. And so now you can see that that's a hindrance. This is exactly then how society gets us hooked is through our own greed, our own, I want something I don't have because I like the feeling that I had when I thought about it. So the the typical way that a charlatan uh, operates is he comes in, he makes friends with you to make you feel good, then he starts talking about something that he thinks is really great and gets you interested in it. And then he offers it to you in a sort of a deal, right? That's how they operate. And then there's a bait and a switch so that when what you wind up with is not what he was promising you in the first place. And sometimes it's pretty far away from it. And sometimes all he ever sold you in the first place was the idea. Okay, so that's in fact how almost all magic potions are sold. Magic it's potions? Somebody wants something. Hmm? Do, you, do you mean that like uh, metaphorically? Or do you mean the actual magic potions? Throughout history, reality, and modern days more euphor- uh, uh, euphorically. Okay. Are yes, you having? Tr- am I? Am I not coming in clearly? To be honest with you, I'm half deaf. I don't hear well. I work okay. at it very hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do a good job. <laughs> All right, I'll I'll just try to speak up a little bit. Okay. Good. Yeah. So you had a question. Um, no, uh, not that I can remember, at least. Okay. Well, we were talking originally about Silabata Paramasa, which is the set of rules that our society uses to hook us with our hindrances. And I just gave you a really clear example of how a charlatan will hook you with his delight. Okay, and gets you interested in wanting what he has to sell. In that regard, every salesman is that charlatan. And every salesman is selling something, whether it's a preacher or a doctor or an automobile mechanic, you name it. That's what business is all about. Is that I've got something you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Business is not so great if you don't want anything. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So how can we train the mind into the state to where we don't want anything? Well, one of the ways of looking at it is by looking at all of these supposed tools that our society has given us. We're supposed to climb the ladder. We're supposed to get a good education. We're supposed to be able to read. We're supposed to get a good job. We're supposed to buy a car. We're supposed to buy a house. We're supposed to buy a, a, what do they call it? Trophy wife. (laughs) Buy a trophy wife? (laughs) I guess technically. (laughs) And then the government, they tell you you're supposed to vote. We want you to vote. Don't you want to vote? Now, there's two ways to get people to want some, uh, to vote. One is to, to talk them into wanting something that they don't have. 
oh, we're going to give you uh, free Medicaid for everybody. Okay. And sometimes that sells and sometimes it doesn't. The other way to get votes is by terrifying people that the other party is so bad. And only we can save you. Meanwhile, we never give you what you want, but it's their fault. The reason we don't ever give you what you want is because they won't let us give it to you. And so this is the way that uh, politics operates. When you can see these things, when you see that it's all built upon a set of rights, rules, rituals, performances, techniques, and um, the society hooks us with those things, with what society does, but we hook ourselves to society or those things wouldn't work anyway. In other words, we leave those places out or hooks for the society to hook us with. But at that point, it's I who grabs that. When that charlatan offers me a special um, uh, option trading thing that we've got past operators and we get your option trades done quickly and you always make a profit, you know, that kind of thing. And those who want to invest and are willing to take a chance and go for the big bucks, they're the ones who grab hold of that, and they're the ones who get cheated. But in another way of looking at it, hey, the whole stock market is like that because it's being manipulated by a few, and they make huge amounts of money off of the greed of the many who buy stock and don't think about what's going on, and whoops, it went down. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so this is the problem with the society, but the problem is not in the society. The problem is with society is that everybody in society is operating within their hindrances. And so that's what we have as a society is a massive human greed, ill will, ignorance, and a whole lot of technology. But the technology that we have, even to the point of, let us say, we built cities. Never mind cell phones, we built cities. Guess what? We came out of a jungle. And we built a city, and now we call it a concrete jungle. Isn't that amazing? We can take the boy out of the jungle, but we can't take the jungle out of the boy. At least not until the boy is ready for having the jungle taken out of him. And so basically what we can say then is the Sila Bhatta Paramasa is the rites, rules, and rituals that we build up over time and cling to tightly as a method or a way to take the jungle out of the boy and it's a raucous failure. (laughs) It's actually an attempt to take the jungle out of the boy giving you a bunch of rules. And in fact, we do socialize children. The little little human beings when they're born are wild animals. They're, they just play at it when they're little. But if you don't give them any restraints at all, they're going to be pretty wild when they grow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Basically, in a way, just rebelling against society. Well, we all rebel against society, but we also are only rebelling against the the rules that we laid down for ourselves in the first place. So we build up a set of rules and then we rebel against them. And we call our own ideas and our own set of rules society, where in fact, there really is no society. We just have a whole bunch of human beings walking around with their own version of society. That's all there is to society. So in that regard, if there are 
let us say 320 million people in the United States, that means that you have 320 million different Republican parties and Democrat parties, 350 million different Democrat parties, 350 million different um, societies. Everybody's got their own view of it. Now, many of them coincide. There's been diagrams in there, you see, with uh, overlapping places, a lot of overlap. But there's a lot of uniqueness also, and everyone builds up their own because everyone had a unique childhood. <clears throat> in that regard, that means that, wait a minute, if I start evaluating that stuff and I have a proper standard, and the standard we can see needs to be a very high quality, noble standard and very, very simple. And that is, is that everyone, when they start looking closely, can see what's the difference between wholesome and unwholesome. What's the distinction between what is actually good and what is not good? Now, basically, there's a whole lot of stuff that's good. We can actually tell what is not good by the fact that it's doing harm so that we can see the harm that's done or the potential harm that can be done then that means that we can see dukkha. That's the Buddha's first noble truth, is to be able to see what's going on and see the dukkha in it, and see the, the unsatisfactoriness in it. And because of that, now we can choose how we're going to be, respond rather than the old way of doing it is responding according to the way that we felt. We felt that this was good and we felt that that was bad. Now we're going to do it with wisdom. We're going to wake up, take a look, evaluate it, figure out, and the, the gold standard that we have is Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. If it's unsatisfactory. Uh, now, we could have other standards. Some people will have the standard, is it holy or not? Or if it's British or not. Or if it's French or not, you know, there's many different standards that people, is it Republican or not? Or is it Democrat or not? Um, is it legal or not? There are many different standards that people will use. But most people ultimately wind up with the standard, do I like it or not? And we're changing our standard now to, is this Dukkha, is this an unsatisfying thing to do, or is it wind up being a win-win-win-win-win situation? When it winds up being that he wins, I win, you win, who we're talking about wins, the guys we're not talking about wins, and everybody wins, then we know for sure it's wholesome. And so... Uh, this is a new standard that we take on. But in doing so, we, we start looking at all this handful of, of seashells or pebbles or whatever we picked up called our rights, rules, or rituals. We should do it this way. We have one, one coin in there that's got a picture of Caesar, and so we have to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You know, we all have all of these ideas about how to, how to do things. Um, and so we examine one of these, each one at a time to see, does this really help? Is this really a wholesome way of looking at it or not? And many times it will be yes, and often enough it will be no. Okay, an example of that is the guy's tooling down the road in his car, and the cop comes up behind him. How is he going to respond to that cop? Is he going to respond to that cop according to wisdom or the way he feels? The way he if feels. He, if he responds to the cop the way he feels, it may be a very dangerous situation. If he one, if he really hates cops, number two, that he's one of these guys who wants to uh, scream about rights and uh, bad cops and all of that kind of stuff. That's a dangerous position to take. But if you can take the position that, hey, there's no problem. 
cops stop people all the time. And if they behave well, everything's going to work out fine. So you can treat that cop like a friend, but we normally don't do that. We don't we don't take the non-Duca route. We take a Duca route because we're operating from our feelings. And so that's how we choose. And so the new opportunity is if we can wake up and remember to it, that we can stop operating by those feelings, even if the feelings have already arisen, we can stop operating according to those feelings. And decide to change and and operate in a new way. Mm-hmm. Now, if we're really upset and really angry at cops in general, and this particular cop in particular right now, it's really hard by then to turn that around. But it still can be done. Somebody can roll down their windows and start taking deep breaths. <sighs> Mr. Officer, I'll be with you in a second. Let me take a breath. <laughs> and calm myself down. So we can do that. But the thing of it is, is just because a cop pulled up beside, behind somebody doesn't mean anything. All of that tension or anger or unhappiness or feelings of fear arose because of what that person did with seeing the cop come up behind him. Looking in the rearview mirror and the red lights and they pull over. Okay. This is what we mean by the the past or the Sankara, that everybody's going to operate differently. Depending upon, um, because it's not really the the real cop behind them that they're responding to. It's the cop that they've manufactured in their head. That this guy is only reminding them about cops in general and how I should treat cops in general. Because they've got several cops in their memories. And so they, they dig those cops up. And now... Uh, the person in the car is responding not to the cop at the window. He's responding to cops that he remembers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or cops he's even heard about. An immigrant who's never been to the United States can uh, be tooling down the road and all he's heard is bad things about cops. And he's going to freak out when one stops him. He's never seen them before, but he's heard some bad things about them. So that's what he he has, and so that's what he reacts to when the actual cop stops him. Okay? This is what is called Sankara in the Buddha. And then, in fact, this sequence that I'm talking about of walking back from that we, we make our judgments and our, our, our attachments, the tanha, back to the... Um, uh, the clinging actually is upadana, back to the tanha, back to the vedana, the feelings. And then with wisdom, we can change our feelings. But that those feelings were feelings that contacted us because of an internal memory system that we made up. And we made up that system. The making it up is called nama rupa, when we take the actual physical cop that walked up behind us. And return him into the image inside of our mind that's got old cops and old information mixed with it to come up with the internal cop that now comes up to the window. So it's not the real dude anymore. It's the one we've manufactured in our mind that we then react to. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. This is actually the teaching of the Buddha. There are poly words for each one of them, and they're almost always used in a sequence. Which is Vinya, you see the cop. Nama Rupa, you take that cop and you manufacture him into a cop inside your head. That's the Nama Rupa giving rise to a Salayatana, the internal cop that in one is actually there and contacts you, which is Pasa, and that's the one you feel about, Vedana. Now that teaches. of the Buddha understand when you teach it like that 
But the way that I've taught it to you is just with this example of a cop coming to the door and how we wind up getting shot because our feelings and we reacted badly. Putting the cop in a dangerous situation, he pulls out his weapon and he blows your head off. Um, a very clear example, by the way, of the uh, of that is the videos that finally were released by the guy who last summer was choked to death by the guy, by the cop having his knee on his neck. Rodney King or something. I know that wasn't him. I forget who the name of the guy George, was. George Floyd. Pardon? George Floyd. Yes, George Floyd. Exactly. But the initial reaction when the policemen were coming up to his window, he probably was already involved with a dirty cop. And he thought that the cop was coming to kill him. And he responded to the cops completely freaked out. That's why they eventually put their neck on him is because he just would not shut up and he would not behave and he would not settle down. He was absolutely berserk with fear. He got himself killed by being afraid. I mean, this is maybe one one area that we might see a little differently from each other. I I I understand that I'm sure that there was some fear conditioning that played a role, but um, I'm not absolving the cops at all. They murdered him. Okay. They murdered him for being afraid. Okay. And a lot of people are afraid of that. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of people get killed because they're afraid of the cops. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Or belligerent to them. I, I understand your point. Yeah. That uh, our, basically our, our conditioning, either through experience or what we've been told, turns things uh, into it, it causes suffering, uh, right. and it's not through actual reality, but it's through our reaction or our conditioned response to those things. That conditioning is what we call sankara. That in fact. That's actually one of the useful definitions of it, but most people, when they hear the word conditioning, they don't really understand what we mean, but you've got it technically correct in this use of it, right? That we are conditioned that way. That whole sum of conditioning, we cling to and hold to. We hold to our conditionings. Why? because we need those conditionings to fit in with society, right? Which means that that societal part of us that instinct is instinctual. And this got several words that, are, that name it. One is the herding instinct, that we, we are herding animals. Humans operate in herds. Another one would be nesting instincts, that humans like to sleep together. It's out of our deep past. Uh, in fact, the Neanderthals, the joke is, is that they slept in a, uh, uh, they, they slept in a, uh, what do they call it, a hairball. A hairball? Well, all of the, all the humans just get into a mess and they sleep <laughs> just all over each other and it winds up being a, big ball because everybody's trying to get into the middle of it because that's the safest place at night. Gotcha. Uh, so we, we are conditioned but the conditioning stinks because it's instinctual. That we're trying to navigate and figure out how to operate in the world and so when we see what's, what hurts and what don't hurt then we make our judgments based upon what hurts and what don't hurt. And we're not using a reality, and so we have to follow a set of rules given by somebody else who promises hurt and don't hurt. 
That's what the Ten Commandments are about, or, or heavens and hells, or any set of rules about hurt and don't hurt. Feelings. That's really an important quality to begin to understand because we don't have to operate like that. We can operate out of judgment and operate in um, wisdom instead, discernment, to see what's really there and operate that way. Actually, this fits in with the teachings that uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was quite a fan of all kinds of religions and was into all of them looking for the similarities and finding quite a lot of similarity with Christianity as uh, for the for the teachings of the Buddha, uh, excuse me, the teachings of Jesus were sim similar to the teachings of, of Buddha, mm -hmm. though he did believe that what they taught and believed there was merely natural wisdom, just like what the Buddha got was natural wisdom that they didn't have to be Buddhist to be able to understand that stuff, that it's right there in front of you if you look. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can see so, that. So, um, there is in the Christian Bible the story of Adam and Eve, though the story is actually much older than the story of Jesus. But the story of Adam and Eve, um, the, the Christians, they really love the story, including all the acts, all the characters and all of the, uh, the, the plots and twists and turns. But they miss the moral of the story. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, when he read that, he got that and got the moral immediately. And then was profoundly shaken when he recognized that the, the Christians don't even understand their own story. You see, the story that the Christians understand has actors like a talking snake and an apple and a woman who gave a man a bad deal. And you hear all of these normal kinds of things, and then some dude came by and threw him out of paradise, right? Really? So it's got a lot of actors and characters in it. But really, if you look at the story itself, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Now, that snake represents something that's been known for a long time, and, uh, and snakes are, for some reason, associated with wisdom. You can see the intertwining snakes in, for instance, medical symbols. Okay, when you, shoot, when you show the, the staff of medicine and the doctors, they've got intertwined snakes and there have been temple snakes and all kinds of things about snake handlers and snake charmers. And it's an interesting thing that the snake winds up is the one uh, who, who gives her uh, her first results. Okay, so they ate of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil because they got the fruit from the snake. But here's the point. The idea about fruit is, is that it is the result of something, like the fruit of your labors, the fruit of the loom, the fruit of the groin. It's used that way here also. That it's not an apple or an orange or a banana or a fig that it is the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the knowledge of good and evil? It is the feelings we have of going around saying, I like this and I don't like that, which means this is good and this is bad. And so what we do with that knowledge is we go around and carve up paradise. And we say, this part of paradise is bad, and this part is good. And then I go to the good part, and I say, this part of the good is bad, and I throw that out. Well, how, what happens to paradise if we keep chopping it up like that? That's how we destroy paradise, is with judgments about what we like and what we don't like. This is, this is in fact, the way that we respond to all of those rules and all of those ways that we should be doing stuff is because we're not really dealing with what really is going on. We're dealing with how we used to feel about it. And so we make decisions for all time that this is good and this is bad 
because we keep dredging up the same old memories about, well, it once was good and it once was, and that was once bad. Therefore, for all time, it gets, at least now again, that's good and this is bad. But, but isn't knowing wholesome and unwholesome pretty close to knowing good and bad? Yes, that's the whole point is, is that the good and bad, though, is coming from your stored memory to where wholesome and unwholesome is based upon your investigation of it in the moment. Looking to see, is it now wholesome or unwholesome? Rather than having a or a criteria or a, 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 a law up on the books and you follow this case with that law and check, okay, it passes that rules test. That's like the uh, the Zen phrase, beginner's mind. Pardon? That's like the Zen phrase, beginner's mind. That's precisely it. Never mind, start again. Don't deal with the past. So I'll let out. Just start again. Right, beginner's mind. Every moment is new. So that means every moment is worthy of not just investigation, but also appreciation. But the best way to appreciate something is by investigating it as best we can up to our skill level. I almost said investigating the hell out of it, but that's got a different meaning. Yeah. <laughs> because, in fact, that's what we're doing. We're taking the dukkha out of it. Yeah. We used to call it taking the Mickey out, but you get the idea Yeah, that we're beginning to make some discernment. We're beginning to look at what's going on and making a choice in this present moment. And in the process of that, we begin to recognize, look at the way that he used to do it. I used to have all of this procedure, all of these setups, all the ways that it should be done or supposed to be done, rather than looking at how it is right now. And so that's a major aspect of the teaching of the Buddha is how we get out of the, uh, the past is the same as getting out of our sila bhata paramasa. And it's also getting out of that herding instinct or that socialization that we have of going along to get along. Going along means following all those rules. We're not going along to get along. We're getting along just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> Doing quite well. Thank you. Don't need to do what you tell me to do in order to be okay. I'm already okay. That's, that's what you just said right now is precisely what I've been trying to work on in my meditation practice the past couple weeks. The uh, what, recognition of... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was your instructions of like, you know, last time we spoke, it was um, recognize that the losing the hindrances is like, is um, like when you arrive at a hotel for vacation, for example, and you can set down your luggage and you say, we've arrived. And I tried to do that. And then part of me was like, no, no, but you haven't arrived. And then I said, you haven't you know, arrived like, yet. <laughs> Right, and then I'm like, but I have, <laughs> but I have, and I don't, I don't need the other, I don't need someone to tell me that I've arrived, like I've, I'm here. Right, but you don't also need that person to say, keep going, you haven't arrived yet, you're not up to scratch. Exactly. That's the Sila Bhatta Paramasa, that, that story that says, no, you haven't arrived, yes, you have. Yeah. Here you are, you've arrived. <laughs> the facts are, here we are. But the story is, is that, no, you haven't gotten it yet. And that's the story that we need to forget, to just drop that out. That's an old story. You've been told that all your life, that you're not good enough. Yeah, it's always about the next goal, the next goal. But there's always the next goal. <laughs> right. But no, there's not any next goals. There's just the next moment. And if you can enjoy it, that's your goal, this next moment. And not only that, but it's the prize. That's nice. 
<laughs> so, yes, this is the whole story of Silabata Paramasa, of giving up all of that stuff. And yet when you see this written in the suttas, it first off is a little bit uh, hard to understand. It's generally a one-liner among many very profound one-liners. Mm-hmm. And it's not expanded upon the way that I've done it for you here to see that um, where it comes from, how powerful it is, and that it keeps us driving, even to the point of, here you are, beginner's mind is, this is it. And then you go back to, uh, um, no, <laughs> this is, you ain't done yet. You you haven't gotten beginner's mind yet. You're still old man yet. Okay, so this is, this is the story that we have been telling ourselves. This is part of the story. Okay, mm-hmm. and this is why we go along to get along is because deep inside we have this position of being a victim. That not only did we start out as a young, tender, infant child, a victim in reality. In reality, we were born as a victim. Every newborn is a victim. The most likely time for any being that is born to die is immediately upon being born or before that. <laughs> that they, they say that most pregnancies are aborted naturally and many times it'll happen and the mom doesn't even know it miscarriages Mm -hmm. very very common okay so that whole idea then is is that we are in fact in a very very dangerous situation when we are born but what that does is that it kicks in the nurturing from the mom so that mom will take care of that infant without expecting anything in return from that infant. If the baby's crying, she'll pat it on the back. If it's pooping, she'll change the diaper. If it's not well, she frets about it. She wants it to be well. She's really taking care of the well-being for that child. But that all changes by the time the child is four to six years old, and now we put the child to work. Do your ABCs, clean your room, shut up, sit down. Put that cell phone down and do your homework. You know, all of that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So the nurturing stops, but the victimhood doesn't. And so we remain victims while we keep now getting a new set of rules and a new set of procedures to follow. And every child feels overwhelmed with all the stuff that they've got to keep track of. Because remember, we were born wild. We're not allowed to be wild. We're kept as that victim. We don't allow, uh, the child is not allowed to grow up and to become a full, full adult, not in our society. If anybody ever does grow up, it's almost like a, an accident and a surprise, and the authorities may come around to try to fix things, <laughs> call him crazy or something. Where in fact, all he did is he woke up and he saw what a mess this society is for us, and it keeps yeah. us all in a state of victimhood. So, as a victim, we now have all of these rules to follow in our heads and say, if you follow these rules, you'll be able to get along. And if you don't follow the rules, then you will be, in fact, victimized just once again. And we now we're caught in a catch-22 and we don't see any way out of it. We can rebel against it and then we'll feel guilty about our rebelling. And all of this is happening within our own minds generally. We don't, we, many folks rarely play it out in reality. We always play it out on the inside. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're going to make an entire new choice. And once we see that that is the right new choice, then we become determined, I'm going to start making that choice every time I have to make a choice. I'm not going to follow feelings anymore. I'm not the feelings that are messed with and manufactured from the past set of rules 
and the way that I felt about those rules in the past. That I'm going to wake up to remember, I'm going to evaluate the situation in this present moment and get a kick out of it. Kick of joy. Have some joy juice in this present moment. I can see what's going on. I do not have to follow that set of rules. I do not have to follow Adam and Eve and have to eat the results of my judgments. I can get back and stop judging things and just allow things to be easy. Back to beginner's mind. You see, what is not a beginner's mind is one who is packed down with a bunch of um, rules and rituals and laws and ways to do things. He's got the hang of the place, so to speak. And that's amazing because it's painful. It's better to yeah. see things right in this present moment, always brand new and investigate it. Investigate, investigate, investigate. This is what is um, uh, the teachings of the Buddha. That's one's right view is to keep looking uh, with the wisdom eye. Keep noticing what is worthwhile and what is not worthwhile. And we have to remember that. That's why sati is so valuable. It's because that's the wake up. That's what we're actually practicing in our meditation session is to wake up. Because then that gives us an opportunity to look at what's going on rather than blindly following feelings. Right. And that whole sequence of events that happens in the mind that we started to go through is what is called Paticca Samuppada. And what that means is dependently arising. Or what that means is this is a, a spark that sets this fuel on fire, but this fuel sets the next piece of fuel on fire. And the next piece, okay, or, or the domino theory, that this domino pushes over that domino, but that domino hits the next domino and pushes it over. So there's the domino effect or the way that fire spreads is because the things sparks from one. And so in that regard, because we have all of this Sankara, all of this old memory that was set up, and it was set up, tainted by ignorance. A little child doesn't have the kind of wisdom that you're inviting yourself to have now. I can even see Kitty at the age of seven or eight. She's not ready to look. She's still caught in the fantasy world of childhood. As children, we don't really understand much of anything. Uh, they're pretty sharp picking up some things, but there's then other things that they completely miss out on especially about their own feelings. <laughs> and so we are as ignorant, we start off ignorant, and because of that, we collect all of these rites, rules, and rituals because we want to go along to get along, very instinctual. So that in the present moment, over the time, all of that stuff built up, so that in this present moment, when we see something, in order to understand it, we take that stuff and process it with all of that old memory to come up with an understanding. That's why the cop that came to the door in reality is not the cop that we see in our mind's eye. Because the one in the mind's eye has got, in fact, if you really were a beginner, you wouldn't even recognize his uniform. If you really were in beginner's mind, you'd say, what's this guy want? And so maybe that's the right attitude. Who are you and what can I help me? I help you, sir. <laughs> Not officer, but just sir. I don't know. Oh, that's a nice blue suit you have there. <laughs> can I have the name of your tailor? <laughs> so we actually do, though, quite quickly in the mind. It happens very quickly that will take this old idea out of the past and bring it up and put it in reality. So what we've talked about so far now is 
Ajiva ignorance, Sankara, is the concocting the package together, the concocting that we have done, uh, the compilation. Then there is Venia, the actual being here and seeing the cop. And then is taking the cop that we actually see and adding all of that old Sankara to it. That's the Nama Rupa. Adding the Sankara coming up with the internal representation is called Shalayatana. That is what contacts us. Who we actually are working with here is the cop in our mind, not the actual one. So that's what contacts us. That's what we feel. But guess what? The feelings that we're going to have now are the remembered concocted feelings that we brought into the darn thing from the past. And if we're sharp about that, we can say, hey, wait a minute. I don't have to treat this cop the way that I treated a cop 20 years ago. I can do this one again. This is new. Okay. I can see how this relates to some things in my life that I. Uh, this is good. I, I can apply this. Well, we have gone through the various steps. This is actually the teaching. Uh, it's in a number of suttas. So it's not just a one off, but this whole sequence of events winds up having 12 items on it. And it happens very quickly in the mind. You can say that in, this is all happening in one mind moment, which is about a tenth of a second. Um, to where we take all of the past, we see something on the outside, we bring the, the past up, we figure out what this is, but our figuring it out is based upon the past, so it's going to be different from what actually is out there. So I'm going to treat this cop the way that I treated an old cop. I'm not going to treat him the, the, or the way that I've heard that I ought to, to treat cops and not treat the cop the way that things are right now. Okay, so that, that contacts me. I have those feelings, and because of those feelings are ignorant, now I'm going to follow those feelings ignorantly, and so I'll want something. Or I'll be afraid of something. And because of that, that's the grasping and clinging, upadana and tanha, that then gives rise to the birth of dukkha. And that's the sequence. That's the way that it operates. And when, you, and we, uh, when we see how the mind operates, we can recognize, hey, we can make a change to that. We've got... We've got responsibilities here. Once I wake up to how the mind is working, I can begin to reevaluate it. I don't have to feel the way that I was feeling because of the old past. But I don't have to follow my habit. I have a choice. And I can respond the way things are right now, rather than how I brought it up out of the past. That's liberating. That's really liberating to have that choice. And that's why we want to develop sati, is so we can make that investigation so that we can make the choice a new choice. Beginner's mind. Okay, thank you. That's the teaching of the Buddha. And I'm really glad that you asked. Now you can see, you can start to see how all of your supposed tos come in to color your existence, and those supposed to cause you suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that those supposed tos are all dukkha. But it's my choice whether to accept them. Mm -hmm. Or you can pick and choose your way through them to see what's useful in all of this mess and what's wholesome and unwholesome. One by one, as they occur, as they arise, you can check that out and say, yeah, that's right. If there's a rule in there, say you're supposed to smile at policemen, you can say, okay, I'll use that one. <laughs> that looks wholesome to me. So as these uh, rules or uh, thoughts and rules arise, 
investigate them. Make a choice. Is this wholesome or is it not wholesome? And that's the new frame of reference that we have. The old frame of reference was just to follow our feelings. So that we can either follow our gut feelings or we can follow our supposed to feelings or we can look at what's really going on and follow our wisdom. All right. Thank you again. So you think you got something useful out of this, huh? Yeah, I do think so. Great. <laughs> I'm sure that you will. You'll start thinking about what we said and you say, yeah, that's right. I can do that. Okay, Julian, well, we'll see you soon. Yeah. Glad to call I'll, you. I mean, yeah, I'm glad I called you. Yeah, I'm glad we found a time that worked. I'll call you in a, in a couple of weeks. All right. We'll see you then. All right. Thank you. Have fun. Bye. Have fun with your investigation. We'll see you. I will. Okay, thanks. Bye.